Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest is Kathy Casey, a former executive in the publishing industry. The crisis created by a brief marriage and divorce becomes a catalyst for her to decide on focusing on her career first and foremost. When she was aged out of her profession and forced to take an early retirement, she faced another crisis of coming to terms of a life and identity built entirely on her profession. With brutal honesty and a healthy dose of self-deprecation, hear how she has taken up the pen for herself to fill in the blank pages to this new next chapter. Please welcome Kathy Casey. Welcome, Catherine, to Phoenix Tales. I always start the conversation off with one question, and that question is, have you faced a challenge, personal or professional, that might have redirected the course of your own life? It's a tough one because there have been a number of, of life experiences that were fairly dramatic, but I think I can narrow it down to two. One would be my marriage and subsequent divorce, and the second would be my forced retirement. So those are two huge inflection points. Usually for most people, the one would be enough. So can we go back to your divorce? Um, how long were you married? I was only married for six years. Only three of them living under the same roof. Uh, and how long ago was the divorce? The divorce was about 25 years ago now. And uh, it was one of those things where I married somewhat foolishly. I made a sort of a shotgun decision. That's not shotgun in the, in the usual sense of marriage. But, um, you know, it was ill-fated decision. And how did that affect sort of your perspective about yourself, right? I'm sure, as you just stated, that there was a sense of you having made the wrong decision. Did it start to get you to question your own judgment in any way? Absolutely. But I, I think I really started to question my own judgment in a, in a deeper way when I reflected on my marriage and on my life. The marriage was the point where I really started to realize that life had always lived me, that I was kind of walking in a coma through my own life. So when you had that revelation, and I'm sure that, that you said that divorce was the impetus, how did you start to unpack that for yourself? Because that's a pretty big, harsh reality to face up to, right? That you were sort of sleepwalking through your life, which means that you basically relinquished a lot of control in terms of how you wanted the outcome of your life to be. Yeah, that's very well said. Uh, I guess the first thing I did was um, go into therapy. <laughs> right. Okay. As most sane people would. <laughs> but were there other things that you did to kind of unpack that big question for yourself? You know, I think I stayed true to myself in, in that I know not really. I think I continued to live the same way, to be honest. And how old were you when you were going through this? I was, well, I was married from 29 to 35. And, uh, you know, it was a difficult marriage and a difficult divorce. But I think both did set 
be up for what I would become in later life. And if you'd like, I, I'll, I'll expand upon that. Yeah, I would, I would love for you to tell us how that set you up for who you became or you've become. Well, the first thing is that I married an Italian, an Italian from Italy and someone I had met in on, on my first trip to Italy. And so it was a whirlwind romance and it did establish my love of Italy. I came to love everything about Italy, even though the, the marriage had, had gone sour. And by the way, we're quite good friends now. We just weren't meant to be together. I now have a home in Abruzzo, which is along the, uh, the Adriatic coast of Italy. And I did go into, after I, after I was married, I, I took a French course in Italian in Florence. And, and so now, you know, I, I speak reasonably good Italian and, uh, and I have my own blog about my experience, uh, experiences being both a property owner and a perennial tourist in Italy. So that's part of what I'm, I'm, I'm doing in my retirement. You know, it, it was interesting because all my life, my, my professional work was anchored in writing, but I was always kind of a pen for hire. And uh, now I finally am, am writing for myself. So that's one thing. So can we go back to... Um... You said that you were forced into retirement, which I assume means that you were aged out. What did you do professionally and in what, um, what field? Yeah, for most of my career, I worked in magazines and in the creative services departments of uh, the advertising side of magazines. So, you know, various titles were, you know, writing director, creative services director, et cetera. And my last job was as the copywriting director for Cunningham's Media Group. And how old were you when you were sort of forced to leave the company? 56, which was six years ago. Wow, that's young. And you were there, obviously, during a period in which there was great upheaval and change in the media landscape, but more importantly, in publishing. Yeah, well, and, you know, this was a great spot, if I can say that, um, was that I wasn't alone. A lot of my peers, if not, in fact, most of my peers were in the same boat. So let's go back to, I mean, I want to come back to that question of um, reinvention at, I think, a relatively young age, because 56 is not that old. But can we go back to that moment when you found yourself a young divorcee, because 35 is quite young. How did that experience affect your self-esteem? I'm not sure that it uh, affected my self-esteem, which I think has always been problematic. I think it was more that it made me realize that I would probably be living a single life. And, you know, that has all kinds of implications, not least of which is that you're going to be financially alone. So if you too lose a job, you don't have the possible safety net of a spouse. It's still working. It also meant that I would live a fairly lonely life. And I don't mean that in the sense of, well, you know, woe is me. I'm lonesome. I've always been a bit of a loner. But that you know, that does have all kinds of implications about who you become. And that's a fairly young age to have come to that conclusion. And I have friends who are divorced in their 50s and still looking to find Mr. Right, right? Like they've never given up that hope to find that person. Nor have I, by the way. Okay, so going back to that kind of understanding of perhaps you weren't suited or you may not be suited or you may not have a life with someone else, at such a young age, like what was it specifically that gave you this indication at 35 that you may end up being single for possibly the rest of your life? 
You know, I think it was it was partly the times. You know, it, it doesn't seem so long ago, but uh, I, I remember thinking, okay, I've probably got until forty before I age out of the market. Before actually <laughs> dating, you know, by then I'm going to be, you know, in my golden years kind of thing, which you know seems so ludicrous now, but at the time seemed very real to me. And so that was kind of what propelled you to think that you might be alone for the rest of your life. Yeah. So going back to that question of, you know, as you proceed as an adult, did that hold you back from trying to find relationships or stepping aside when relationships presented themselves? Part of the issue was after after a marriage that has been bad, I think I'm not alone in and what my reaction was, which was, you know, I really just want to be by myself for a while. I, I don't want any part of a man. And so, you know, thinking that and feeling that way, I did lose some early dating years because I just, I just wanted some peace. But if you could pinpoint one regret of not being with someone, what would that regret be? If you have any at all? I do have a regret. I don't have is a regret about childbearing. I, I never had that baby lust. So in case anyone's wondering if that was the regret, it's not. I think the regret is that I, you know, I sometimes look at couples and God knows long marriages sometimes are not enviable at all. But I sometimes look at couples who've been together for a very long time. And, you know, I think of that, that old Carpenter song. It wasn't we've only just begun if it's the other one. For all we know, and you know, there's a line in there that that's always struck me. It said, "Let's let's take a lifetime to say I knew you well." Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, and I think I think there's a real, I think you know, something sacred in that, really. So I I've never had that kind of really a relationship where I really had to fight through the hard times and come out the other end with someone. Yeah, as they always say, it's you know, the grass is always greener. I've been with my husband nearly thirty years. And I say this, even though our marriage is very good and we've had a lot of ups and downs, that if we were to divorce or he were to die, I would never get married ever again. Right. That I feel as though I've done it. I've done it all. Right. Right. And I have no desire to capture, recapture, feel the sense of I didn't have something or experience something having had a relationship. So. I think it's interesting to hear the other perspective because you're right, there's an intimacy and a, a sense of belonging with someone, but that takes a lifetime. I mean, 30 years, you go through many, many valleys and peaks, right, to get to that point. So when you were kind of coming to that realization, did that help you to focus really on the career as a way to sort of define yourself as a way for you to find purpose in your life? Well, it's interesting you should ask. I never thought as I was going through it that my career gave me purpose. That was a reality that I woke up to. And it wasn't a pleasant, it was a bit of a rude awakening after I lost my job, just how much I did define myself by my career and by my job and even by my title. I wasn't pleased with that because I thought that was the... <laughs> To be perfectly honest, I thought that was the domain of men. And I came to realize that well, it wasn't so much that I that I adored my job or I, I was I wasn't even particularly ambitious. I had a good job, I was successful, but I wasn't setting the world on fire. 
but I came to realize just how much, not only I defined myself by my job, but how much my job gave order to my life because I'm not one of those people who establishes an architecture for my life. And even for each day, I have to reinvent each day sort of on the fly because that's the way I am. And that's that sense of um, displacement and feeling at a loss is experienced by a lot of men, specifically when they um, hit retirement. So how did you kind of work through, uh, so I'm 56, I could conceivably live for another 35 years. What is it that I'm going to do for the next 35 years to A, provide that architecture to your day, but more importantly, the architecture to your own life? That was a real struggle. You know, I'll say when I first was out of work and with time on my hands, I really um, foundered and floundered. There was a bit of depression. It wasn't debilitating, but uh, it did take me a while to sort of get my footing in the world again. What I did was start to really focus on the things that I would call my passions. And, and, and the primary one is animal issues and the way animals are treated. So I started joining groups and going to seminars and conferences uh, that were given by animal organizations and, um, you know, started making some contacts and offering my services as a writer pro bono to various organizations, some of whom took me up on my offer. I now work with a couple of organizations in particular. And one thing that's really dear to my heart is uh, the ALDF, which is the Animal Legal Defense Fund, is working with me. We're establishing a scholarship program for what is a, a nascent area of law, which is animal law, and aiming scholarships at less privileged communities. And we just got that launched this past year. It, it's very small, but it's something I'm hoping maybe I can grow. I was blessed in that I, the wolf wasn't at the door when I lost my job. I had saved a bit, but really I owe the security I have to the fact that my father planned well for his children. And so I'm trying to establish some uh, scholarships in, in his mother's name. I'm working with my local animal shelter, which is the, in New York, it's the ACC. And working with them, hands-on, that's in the shelter. And shoveling cats around for vet appointments, <laughs> uh, doing their cat bios to try and get people into the shelter to meet them and perhaps adopt them and that sort of thing. And then, you know, occasionally writing for an organization here and there if they need a particular thing. Sometimes people need letters to the editor, ghostwritten. So I'll, I'll ghostwrite letters because letters to the editor are important in uh, changing laws and getting government to pay attention. So you kind of mentioned um, briefly that your career was, um, you thought, you know, didn't define you because it wasn't something you were passionate about. So were you able to, with the space that your retirement created, be able to start to circle around that question of what is my passion? What is it that I wish I had done if I could go back? Or what is it that I wish to do now that you have this time in front of you. Yeah, well, certainly it did do that. It, it forced me to concentrate on what was really important to me. And two things were the answer, animals and uh, my love of travel and specifically my italophilia. But, oh, it meant if I could do it again. Yes. I certainly would not pursue the career that I did. You know, I was also at the generation who we came out of college. You were a liberal arts 
major. Many of us stumbled out of college and stumbled into the first job that was offered you. And many times that became your career. You made your way through that. And that's exactly what happened to me. I started in magazines at the entry level and, you know, we were off. And that was that. But, but on the advertising side, I would not waste now what skills I have in a career in an industry. And when I say an industry, I mean really advertising and marketing that I've, I've come to think is less than normal. <laughs> Let's say that. Uh, I would probably go either the editorial route or I maybe go you know, completely out of the industry and study veterinary medicine or something. So that goes back to, you've mentioned a couple of times, the importance of writing in your first professional career and professional life, but also now as a way to connect to, you know, different communities and help different communities. Have you ever thought about pursuing writing as a full-time career? At this point in my life? Yes. You know, the thing is, no, I, I guess the short answer is no. I feel like I've written as a career already. Of course, entertain writing a book or trying to place various articles, which I, I've done in my life anyway, and I find that to be a, really a full-time job. So I'm pretty happy writing for the animals in my shelter and, and writing for myself. And, you know, my blog sort of serves as my outlet for memoir writing, which is basically the kind of writing I'd be most interested in anyway. I never felt like I had a novel in me that's not my ambit, really. And then if you could kind of go back to that question of, you know, you've got all this time and many of us are assuming that many of us will be living for quite a long time. And I know you made mention of the fact that you're fortunate to have a father who saved to help you. Have you thought about perhaps not just a need financially, but perhaps a need just to start a new career at this juncture of your life? I did. I entertained that for a while. And I think I decided, no, now it might be, there might be something that would strike me. You know, for example, I just went back out to my college to, it wasn't a reunion, but it was a, a, a few friends and our old Russian lit professor and was having us to dinner. And, and he and his wife are a couple of characters and quite interesting. And his wife, she's just a bit older than I am. She's taken up studying casting and she's creating all of these works in metal. And it was fascinating to me. I actually came away thinking, oh my God, maybe I'm going to look at my local universities and see if they have any adult education casting classes, because that could be something you might be interested in. Casting of sculptural pieces? Yeah. And oh. Yeah. Okay. I like had any artistic talent, but you never know. Right, right. It's more the question of like the possibilities that you could do these things. So I'm a, you're a baby boomer and there's such talk about, you know, the baby boomer generation coming into retirement age and how that's shifting the landscape of our culture and the demands upon our culture in terms of healthcare needs and so forth. Have you thought about what that's going to look like for you as someone who is single, what the next phase that might be different from now could look like, and how would you navigate that? You know, I have thought about it, but I, I feel like because I really don't know where life is going to take me, I am, I am still hoping maybe to find a partner for the last segment of my life. 
And, you know, I'd be open to, to whatever that is. I, you know, I, I would be open to moving, for example. So I don't know where I'll be ge- geographically. But, you know, meantime, I have family and friends and, you know, different little clutches of family and friends who are started to talk about, hey, maybe we maybe we should all think about where we move together so that we become each other's families in old age and we take care of each other and we still have a great social life and activities and stuff. And I do think that that's a, a really lovely thing that's happened in culture lately that our parents didn't benefit from, that, that friends really have become family. And that's, that's something we can all look forward to as a way to go out of this life. Does that kind of envision, because I've read articles about a group of friends, women specifically, buying a house together and creating kind of like a cohabitation thing where you know, they share space, they share their lives, they help each other out. Is that sort of what your friends are alluding to and what you envision as a possible way of coming into the age where we do need others? Probably not the buying a house together. I think the model would be more, okay, let's all buy condos in a little condo community somewhere in New England or somewhere in North Carolina or something like that. And when you think about this next phase, because it feels like you've you've kind of weathered the shock and storm of having been phased out of your career and kind of finding a different purpose to this next chapter. What do you think that you would carry with you into the next phase as part of what you've learned first from your divorce, but also what you've learned in that second inflection point where you've had to make that transition and to more importantly, to finding out who it is you are, right? Separate of a person or a career. That's a good question. The answer I give might seem a little bit soft or or oblique, but um, one of the things that I feel like I've I've learned and I'm continuing to try to learn in my work with animals and animal organizations is compassion. And when I say that, I mean, I, I've always had compassion for animals. What, I'm, what I've learned from some of these organizations is that you really need to have compassion for, for the people who sometimes are the ones mistreating animals because something has happened to them, right? They're, they're wounded or injured in some way. And that's really made an impression on me. So now when I meditate, which I don't do as often as I like or should, but I meditate on compassion because I know it's something I need. You know, my first reaction to people who, who do something particularly to animals, my first reaction is, you know, put them before a firing squad and never look back. But that focus on compassion and really trying to always keep it front of mind, I think is something that would be helpful moving forward, because there are going to be a lot of challenges with we all get a little bit trying in our old age and, and we're tried sorely with various problems, financial problems and health problems and whatnot. So I guess I would hope that I'll be bringing compassion to the people that I'm interacting with and caring, not caring for, but, you know, who might to care for in my later years. And the flip side of that, bringing compassion to others is the question of bringing compassion to yourself first and foremost. So do you feel as though that's still something you're trying to find for yourself or it's something that you know you have 
And therefore, you can bring that compassion to others with greater certainty, right? I think, yeah, I, I think we all, a lot of us have difficulty showing ourselves compassion. And I think I still probably struggle with that. I mean, listen, there are plenty of times when I, I think I give myself too many breaks. But I think there is always lurking beneath the surface that, and me at least, a certain amount of self-loathing might be a strong word, but a certain amount of self-criticism. And even at this point in your life, you feel as though that the Greek chorus in your head has not quieted in any way? It might have uh, toned down the volume a little bit. Yeah, I think I think that does happen. But there are still all kinds of moments, even little things when, you know, I've, 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 I've used the word. Uh, I'll, in fact, I'll probably feel it after this interview when I've used the word. <laughs> that I didn't. That wasn't precisely what I wanted to say. And I was you know, yeah, you jerk, you idiot. <laughs> and then can we go back to that idea of compassion? If you could go back to your young married self, do you think the outcome of the relationship and the outcome of the marriage might have been different if you had a greater sense of compassion? I think probably not. I think we were just very ill-matched. But I do think that I probably should have understood some of his points of view a little bit better. I will say that. And I'm sorry for that. And, and I have apologized to him for whatever role I played in the demise of our marriage. But I think the marriage was intended to have a demise. And then knowing that you have that incredible um, Greek chorus, I'm assuming that when the marriage broke up and as the marriage was falling apart, that the Greek chorus was symphonic at times. Yes, yes, it was. Again, how did you not let that completely debilitate your ability to move forward, whether it's to see the possibility of a new relationship, but more importantly, in terms of your own self-esteem in the greater world? You know, I think I did carry it with me. I, I probably never unloaded that luggage completely. But I'll say one of the things, one of the things that was really a problem for me in leading the marriage was the fact that I'd been raised Catholic the baggage that I carried with the divorce was just that whole Catholic guilt. And it was my mother who instilled that Catholic guilt, really. And, you know, she basically said to me that my biological father had died when I was six months old, so I never knew him. And my mother remarried when I was 11. But she said uh, at the time of my divorce, she said to me, if your father had lived, we probably would have been divorced. And Juliana, I can't tell you what a stunner that was to me. So as you sort of sit back, and I feel like this is a moment in your life where you're, you've done a lot of that, sitting back and sort of reflecting. If you could offer advice to, let's say, a person who is facing an inflection point of change out of some t tumult, what advice could you offer them? to navigate the choppy water, so to speak. I think I can safely say without possibly doing anybody any damage who might take my advice is that really sometimes when you don't know where to turn or which way to move, the only thing to do is just to stay out in the world. Because I do have a tendency to isolate like a wounded animal. You know, I'll lick my wounds in the, in the corner if it's left to my own devices. So I think just staying out in the world, when I lost my job, 
not really knowing what to do next, I, I just stayed in contact. Just stay out in the world and something will drop into your lap. So even when you don't know, you don't see it, you don't know where it's going to come from. Something's going to drop into your lap. And in my case, eventually now I've cobbled together something that looks like a purpose in my, in my retirement. I think that's a great place to end. Before I ask the last question, can you tell the audience that the name of your blog and what they can expect to find in your blog? Oh, thank you for that. My blog is called parttimeitalian.com. Part-time is hyphenated. They can expect to find my reflections on my experiences as a property owner slash perennial tourist in Italy because I don't live there. I'm not a native. And yet I'm not just a casual tourist. So I think I have something of a particular perspective. That's wonderful. All right. So we get to the very last question of the interview. If you could name one song that either speaks to you or feels as if the songwriter had been writing about your life, what would that song be? I'm a big Jackson Brown fan because I am a 70s gal. Not born in the 70s, but you know, teen in the 70s. And there was a song called The Only Child. And yet every time I think about it, my, my voice is going to crack because um, there's, a, there's a stanza that says, remember to be kind when the pain of another will serve you to remind that there are those who feel themselves exiled on whom fortune never smiled. And upon, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. And upon whose lives felt heartache has piled. <laughs> I think that keeps me, I, I like to think that it, uh, when I think of it, it keeps me grateful because God knows I should be grateful. Yeah. That's lovely. Thank you, Catherine, for sitting down with me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Juliana Kimbrand. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience. When I got tired of waiting, then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it. I'ma say this because we gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack, focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, woulda. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.